Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda Podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and I welcome you to episode number 31, where I will be speaking with Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania member Adam Waterbear DePaul on the topic of loss of cultural identity and the negative effects on the energetic body. Coming up next. Hello and welcome to Hamsa Holistic Healing and Ayurveda Podcast. I'm your host, Sherry, and it is my deepest desire to journey with you down the path to better health, mind, body, and spirit through the practice of mindfulness and spiritual awakening. Here in this sacred space, we will examine how the practice of higher consciousness and self-awareness can actually lead us to an optimal state of physical and spiritual health. We will talk about the various ways to increase our awareness and support one another along this beautiful journey. Thank you for being here and welcome. Adam Waterbear DePaul is a tribal council member of Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania, where he also holds the positions of storykeeper and coordinator of the Rising Nation River Journey. He co-curates the Lenape Cultural Center in Easton, Pennsylvania, and the exhibit Existing Artistry, Enduring Presence, the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania at Temple University. DePaul is a PhD candidate and instructor at Temple with a primary research area in cultural and mythological studies, and is the co-founder and president of the Native American and Indigenous Studies at Temple. I would like you to all take a moment to think about your biological family and your culture that you identify with. Within that family, you'll have a cultural identity that is filled with cultural traditions that your family celebrates and that you identify with. And so whenever you are forced to deny your identity, to fit into a cultural norm, say, because maybe your ethnicity and culture is not accepted where you live by the other people around you, or you live amongst another type of culture that's very dominant in their viewpoint, and you're forced to deny your authentic self, you are forced to deny your own cultural your beliefs, because someone from another culture is telling you that you are not valid. That kind of denial of your cultural identity is going to cause deep trauma within the energetic body. And so I welcome my guest today, Adam Waterbear DePaul, who is a tribal council member of the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. And we're going to talk about loss of cultural identity and the negative impact that has, not just when it's happening, but many, many years after, as that denial of your culture continues for the indigenous people, the Lenape tribe, and I'm sure others, and how this kind of trauma lives in our DNA and is passed through the generations, and how we must bring awareness, and we must bring healing in some way that we can figure out 
to stop this kind of bullying behavior. And as we know, deep-seated trauma, unprocessed and unhealed, can cause all kinds of chronic illness from depression, anxiety, you know, the mental illnesses and imbalances to heart disease, diabetes, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, cancer, and the list goes on. When we leave these deep-seated traumas unhealed and unresolved, they have to come out in some way. And so unfortunately, we then experience disease. And so that's why I'm bringing Adam on the podcast and awareness to the Lenape people because they have experienced trauma from lack of cultural identity or the loss of cultural identity and then displacement of their whole entire nation elsewhere, moving slowly out west to Oklahoma, Wisconsin, and then Canada. We need to have a discussion on what we can do to bring awareness, first of all, and bringing awareness then comes validation of the culture and the feelings, and and then comes healing, which this podcast is all about. So without further ado, Adam Waterbear DePaul. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I wanted to start with, uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a tribal council member and the story keeper for the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. How did you become involved in your culture so deeply, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I was obviously, I was involved in the culture uh, since I was a child, but uh, deeply to the extent that I am you know, involved in council and, and the actual administration of the nation. That happened, I want to say, around the time I was going for my master's degree. Until then, I had a lot of, uh, I spent a lot of time in, you know, in my education, and I didn't have much time to dedicate to the nation. I went away uh, to Philadelphia for school. But when I got to my graduate degree, I began to blend my academic studies, bring my culture into my studies. And then uh, since it was one one subject, then I had more time to spend in both areas. And then I was really able to dedicate myself more fully to the nation. So growing up in your house, you had all the influence all the time about with your culture. Well, my upbringing was very much like many of ours is when I was a young child, I had no idea who the Lenape people were, what my specific heritage was. You know, I knew that we had Native Americans in our family. Uh, I heard stories from my mom and she would talk about her grandfather and grandmother here and there, but it was not something that we knew academically in any specific historic way. It wasn't until I want to say mid-teens or maybe late teens that a very close friend of the family who is uh, Apache came up to us and and he said, you know, you you folks are native and your family comes from this town and always has. Chances are you're Lenape. You should go talk to this Lenape nation of Pennsylvania and see if you can make a connection. Uh, And that's what we did. And 
and right away, uh, you know, they worked with us on our genealogy and, and we found out that was our lineage and then it was all over from there. Yeah. <laughs> we were yeah. very involved. I think growing up, a lot of us don't know like our ancestral story or our, the heart of our culture. I, I think we're like, we're, we're just kids and we don't even notice or really take an interest in what culture we're from until we get a little bit older and realize the importance of that, the heart of that. I think often that can be the American experience, mm -hmm. the typical American experience. You know, some people are raised very strongly with their culture from day one. Oh, yeah. um, and of course, I'm not just talking about Native Americans. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with upbringing and how strongly your parents instill that sense of cultural pride in you. But I think typically in America, it's not, it's not one of our primary focuses. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that. So thank you for sharing that. I'm, now I would love to hear the history of the Lenape people of Pennsylvania. The history, oh. how this all came to be. Sure. So the Lenape people are the indigenous people of this area, eastern Pennsylvania, southern New York, all of New Jersey, and northern Delaware. Uh, this is the Lenape Hooking, the place where the Lenape come from, our indigenous homelands. You know, I could lecture on this for hours, so I'm going to give you the very abbreviated version, but feel free to ask me to elaborate on anything. Uh, but very briefly, we had a relatively good relationship with William Penn. And then William Penn's sons turned that relationship completely around. This is the era of the walking purchase, uh, for one example, and really began the era where many, many of our people were forcibly removed from the Lenape hooking or killed. Now, at this time, many of our people left, had to leave, and they went through the tumultuous, continuous moving and settling and uprooting and being moved again and so on and so on for years and decades. And they went in all directions. And, and today there are Lenape people everywhere, all throughout the country and beyond, who you know settled wherever they could and survived however they could. But of that diaspora, of our people that were forced to remain out, uh, to move out, three groups maintained a large enough number of cohesive people to finally end up settling in places where they would have nations that still lasted to this day. And those groups went to Canada, Wisconsin, and Oklahoma. And in those three areas, there are uh, federally recognized nations to this day. Meanwhile, uh, many uh, other Lenape were able to stay here in the Lenape hooking. And there's a number of ways that could happen some very small groups were able to go into hiding and escape notice. Some of our people struck up deals with farmers or plantation owners that usually involved something like indentured servitude in able to be able to stay here. But the primary way that our people stayed here was through marriages between Lenape women and colonial men, always in that direction. Lenape men were not permitted to stay here and marry colonial women that been a horror for the colonists. <laughs> um, but uh, some of these marriages date back to a long time before the forced removal, before the era of Penn's sons, and 
seem to really have sprouted out of genuine goodwill, uh, good relationships. And some of these early households, the the patriarch of the family might have even allowed certain aspects of the culture, like the family might have been bilingual, the children might have been able to speak Lenape or or have some remnants of their culture. But as time went on, and as the colonists became very hostile towards us and started eradicating or moving us, some of these marriages kept happening. But that leniency, that allowance of Lenape culture uh, was no longer permitted in the colonies. And by the time uh, the walking purchase happened and beyond, if you were a Lenape woman in a colonial family in the colonies, you gave up every vestige of your Lenape culture, at least publicly, under threat of being kicked out or worse. So uh, these women, they dressed like colonists, they spoke like colonists. Of course, they couldn't practice any of their spiritual or ceremonial traditions, and they passed themselves off as uh, part of the dominant culture for centuries. And that's how our people largely uh, survived here. Uh, And it was the families of those women, the children they raised and the families they raised that kept our culture going really in secret under the radar through the oral tradition. They passed down whatever they could of the language and the ceremonies for centuries. And this is the lineage of my nation, the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania. We are largely represented by those women and those Lenape who did not leave, who remained in the homeland in these ways. And my nation is not the only nation. There's We have nations in New Jersey, the Ramapo Lenape and the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape. And there's also a, a Lenape and a Nanticoke nation in Delaware State. All of us here in the Eastern Woodlands were largely represented by those women and their families. Mm. Now, uh, let me just go back. The walking purchase. Tell me about, I know it has something to do with good faith in William Penn And then it took a downward spiral with the sons not being honest and upright. Yes. We had agreed out of respect for William Penn, we had agreed to let his sons have some land. Is this like the 1700s or the 1700s? Yes. We made an arrangement that was not uncommon for our people. It was a walking arrangement. And we said that we would walk for a day and a half. We would start down by the Delaware River and walk northwest, yes, northwest for a day and a half. And at the end of that day and a half, we would draw a line on the map back to the Delaware River. And that little triangulation of land, that would be what we would give Penn's sons. There's a number of reasons for this kind of walking agreement. When you were entering any kind of land dealing or any dealing really with somebody, If you spent time walking with them, it let you get to know the people uh, with whom you were entering, you know, these agreements. You got to talk to them, learn their intentions, what they were about. If it was a a longer walk like this one was, you got to stop for lunch and see how they provide for themselves. Do they hunt? Do they forage? Do they pack with them? How do they treat the environment when they do so? And if you're camping overnight, that gives you a long time to talk by the fire and things. So... This was not uncommon, and this was the arrangement. But after this was agreed upon, but before the date came, Penn's sons did a number of things. The first thing they did was they hired people to clear the land to the best they could. 
So they had all the brush and vines and shrubs in as straight a line as they could chopped down and cleared to make for a, a straight, unobstructed path. And then they hired three professional runners from their ranks to participate on this day. So we all met on the day and proverbial gun went off. And these three runners just took off running down this cleared path. You know, our people wandered down for a few minutes and kind of meandered about confused and then realized that nobody was joining them and just sauntered off the path. But in the meantime, these runners kept running. Two of them had to stop out of exhaustion before the, the day and a half was ended, but one runner ran for the full day and a half. And that's where they made the plot. And then the last little trick was that when they drew the line from that final point to the Delaware River, they actually tilted the map very slightly to make that a more obtuse angle than it would have been otherwise. But a little tilt goes a long way when you're working with that kind of scale. So where we had intended to put aside you know, a few acres for the, the Penn Sons to have some kind of family settlement, we ended up losing an amount of land in Pennsylvania about the size of Rhode Island State. Oh my gosh. Now we start to speak to the, you know, the underhandedness and the, the distrust. And I'm really curious, the Lenape women, I'm assuming it was kind of a forced in the beginning arrangement or later on when it started getting kind of ugly. That must have been so stressful to have to leave, you know, say you're in love with an Lenape man, you know, this, this is your culture. This is your, and you have to go with this person who is completely different than you and have children with them and not be allowed to look like yourself, act like yourself, speak like yourself, and just live in this disingenuous, unauthentic version of yourself. And then pass that down for generations. I, I can't imagine traumatically like the trauma that's involved in that, especially for the women then carrying children and having to live like that. Absolutely. Now it is important to to understand that not all of these marriages were forced. Right. Of course, now we don't have there aren't diaries from this time that tell us, oh, I, I genuinely love my husband and this is authentic. And, <laughs> oh, I hate this guy, but I'm just marrying him to stay here. You know, okay. we know that the early, for instance, the early German settlers did uh, seem to have a very uh, genuinely good relationship with the Lenape people. Uh, we actually have a story in our archives where after things became violent and hostile towards us and, and we were fighting with the colonists. There's a story in our archives where a Lenape person was about to shoot a colonist and it was German colonist and he said, uh, I think it's Schosnat, but he said, don't shoot in German in his native tongue. And when the Lenape heard him say that in German, he, he stopped and he asked him in German, are you German? And once he found out he was German, they well, it doesn't say they became friends, but but he did not shoot the person. So there are definitely, like I said, it it seems to be intuitively that some of the very early marriages, when the colonists just got here, there's a good chance that a lot of them were genuine. But that definitely 
you know, as things got hostile and as marrying into a colonial family became one of the only ways you could stay here and not be forced out, it's very easy to assume that many of the later marriages were not. Right, right. So then we get into the displacement. The Lenape Nation people, Pennsylvania, are being forced to have to scatter if they don't want to participate in what's being told that they need to do. And and so they do they move on their own towards the West? Was it a slow migration? Did they try to settle this place or that place? And then that didn't work out and they had to move further again? Yes. And that's that's really something important to bring up. But let me back up for just a second, because I don't want to give the impression, you know, our people were not given the choice hey, you can stay here and become a colonist, or you can leave. Our people were forced out. The walking purchase is just one example, and it's actually a relatively mild example of the hostility we faced at our cultural center in Easton. We have a blown-up facsimile of a 1700s Pennsylvania Gazette in which John Penn publicized bounties, prices that he would pay his colonists if they brought in either scalps of Lenape people or live Lenape people to be kept as slaves or executed. And the prices he would pay, he breaks down by gender and age. So this much for an adult male, for an adult female, for a male child, and for a female child. So it was not a choice for us. We were forced to move under threat of being hunted for bounty, you know. Now, those women who married into those families, the the colonists, there were a number of reasons the colonial men seemed to take a strong liking to Lenape women. Some of it was cultural. Uh, There were many cultural differences. The Lenape women were very less inhibited in many ways than colonial men were were used to coming over from their very strict religious uh, cultures. But the primary reason was that our our women were the masters of the agricultural science. They knew everything from tilling the first soil and planting the first seed to turning that into food here. And not only did they have all that knowledge, but they did all that work. You know, the colonists were on foreign soil. They had no idea what would grow or when. So really, they depended on those women. And, And our women were largely responsible for the colonists being able to survive and thrive here. Yeah. the way that they did those first through years, decades. And I only go into that just, just to give some background to another reason why those marriages happened. And it, and it certainly wasn't, you know, the town crier didn't come out and say, well, you can stay here and, and forget your heritage or you're free to leave. We, we were chased out with the exception of, of those marriages and those few people who went into hiding. Mm. But yes, the now for our, uh, diaspora for those who did leave and were forced out and or had to run out. You're exactly right. You know, people uh, sometimes, a lot of students also get the idea that when we talk about these relocations, it's something like, oh, the Lenape all picked up from Pennsylvania and walked out to Wisconsin and settled down and that's where they are now. But no, this is a process of continuous upheaval. You know, our people would go as far as Western Pennsylvania, or maybe uh, they'd begin to move uh, north into Southern New England, Connecticut, and they would feel safe, like they had escaped the problem and begin to settle and reestablish their community and agriculture. And 
of course, then in it could be a couple months, could be a year, could be a few years, but colonialism would catch up with them and they'd be chased out and uprooted again. And then they'd make it as far as Ohio or make it up as far as Vermont. And this is the continuous process that, that happened over decades and centuries. And again, and, trauma. Yes, all along. You know, always setting up, trying to reestablish, and then, no, running again. And that kind of trauma is deep, deep in the tissues, deep in the heart. And so now I think it brings us to talking about cultural identity and the loss of what, what does that mean? What is the impact of that? And you can speak to it firsthand because you are a, a Lenape Nation person. Talk to me, Adam, if you will, about cultural identity and, and the trauma of being cut off from your culture. Yeah, and, and that's a very, it's a very complicated idea. Mm. Right? It's not all or none. You don't either identify as a Lenape person or you don't. When you talk about your cultural identity, and this is any cultural identity, there are many factors that go into what that identity means to you and how it affects you. Some of the topics I bring up specifically when I talk about Lenape identity, there are particular challenges we face throughout the centuries and centuries of our people living and hiding here. Much was lost. Fortunately, we were able to keep our ceremonies, our religious practices going. Those were passed down to us. But one thing that was very devastated was our language. Now, and language is inextricably tied up with culture. It's such a form of cultural identity, and not just in a pride sense, not just, you know, I feel more part of a culture when I speak my language. That is definitely, absolutely true. But the language, the lexicon, the grammatical structures of a language actually carry a culture, parts of the culture in it. So our language today is, it's actually in a category below what is considered endangered by linguistic standards. Uh, it's in a category called latent. But we have a, a very strong language program to try to revitalize the language. And we're, we're very proud and happy with that. And other nations are also working on revitalizing the language. So and that's definitely something. And being one of the, I'm a co-teacher in training for the language class and working with language students, and even just our, our nation members who might not have time to attend the class, but they ask about words here and there. Every new word one of our people learns, it strengthens that cultural tie. You see that pride in knowing the language of their people, even if it's just a word here and there. So working with the languages is definitely one big part of culture. Another part, and stop me anytime, because I, like I said, I could go on all day about this. Other things that tie into culture, uh, we definitely have to wrestle with the way in which we're portrayed in media through Hollywood books, um, songs. And now today, we also have to wrestle very strongly with social media. Native Americans are very often used as a tool for different political agendas. If you go on YouTube or blogs or something, you'll see people talking about Native Americans and uh, trying to use our history or presence as a tool for or against something like immigration or other things like that. 
there are many legal processes that influence a person's native identity. Most obviously, the processes of recognition, federal recognition, state recognition. And that's an incredibly complex topic all on its own. But my take is that the biggest takeaway from the processes of government recognition is that they have been very damaging and that if the system is going to continue at all, it needs to be drastically revisited because it draws lines through communities. And it's a one of the clearest example of divide and conquer that we have today in the U.S., one of them. Um, and the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania is not a recognized group. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, all of us. There's So there's two layers of of recognition. There's federal recognition, there's state recognition. And none of our nations out here on the East Coast, none of the people who come from the lineage I described to you who who remained here in hiding, none of us will ever be eligible for federal recognition unless somehow the laws change. And that comes down to one particular law that says to even be considered for federal recognition, you need to be able to show a government-to-government relationship between your nation and the United States government since the 1700s. And this is, you know, if you put that together with the history I just described, you can see why we're in this strange position where it's our diaspora that has federal recognition, but not any of us here in our homelands, because since the government was continuously forcing and hurting our people out, they always knew where those folks were because they were pushing them there. They were chasing them there and they kept records of, you know, where the, where the savages went. But again, uh, in order to remain here, we passed ourselves off as colonists in every way we could, even down to census data, down to things like birth and death records. When we were allowed to have them, very often we weren't. But if we filled out forms like that, we, we checked off the white box. Um, sure. So now the government says, well, you folks disappeared. You can't show that government-to-government relationship. So none of our nations in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware will be eligible for federal recognition unless something happens about that law. And the state of Pennsylvania doesn't recognize any. Right. And the Pennsylvania is the only state, it's the Commonwealth, but it's the only state in the Lenape Hoking that has no state-recognized Native people. Delaware and New Jersey both have state-recognized Lenape tribes. New York does not have a state-recognized Lenape tribe, but they have other Native American tribes who are who are state-recognized there. Pennsylvania has never recognized any Native American nation at all. Mm-hmm. And so with that, you know, when people listen to this podcast and they say, you know, that's not cool, that's not right. You know, what can, what can we do? I mean, is there something people can do, you know, outside the nation, but love and love culture and feel that this was not a fair shake and they want to help try to make it right? Is there something that people can do to help out? There is. And what exactly that will look like will depend on, on what the immediate future holds. We, we actually right now, our nation, we do have a state recognition committee, and we are pursuing state recognition in Pennsylvania. The process has been long 
and this government processes are, all, are always long, but it's been extra long because of COVID. Really, a lot of offices shut down, put a lot of people back, but we are working towards it. And we are hoping that it will go through smoothly, just based on on what is right and yeah. and what we know should be the case. But if we hit roadblocks, if we get opposition that for which there's no foundation, then there may be a time for grassroots letter writing, organizing, and that kind of thing. So if anybody wants to lend their support, they can contact the nation. And right now, we wouldn't say do anything in particular, but if the time comes, we'd be happy to let people know how much support we have from the community. Is there like a newsletter or something if people like wanted to know what's keeping up with the progress of it? Yes. Uh, if people get in touch with us through the website, they can let us know that they want to be on our mailing list. And then we put out newsletter and other notices to people. Is there an email or some way of... Yes. The, the email is on our website and that's info at lenape-nation.org. Perfect. And you can also, if you go to our website, there's also just a section at the bottom where you can submit a comment and it emails us. Okay, great. So now we're, we'll just change gears a little bit. Thank you. That was great. You really grabbed the essence for us, the struggles that have been happening. I just, I'm happy today that we get to chat. I hope we get to chat in the future too, to bring awareness, you know, to, like you said, it happens to a lot of different groups of people. And I think awareness brings validation, understanding, and then healing eventually. But I wanted to ask you, because this thing is really cool, the Rising Nation River Journey that my husband and I totally want to do in four years from now. Can you explain that? Because that's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible thing. It really is. The Rising Nation River Journey began in 2002. What happened in 2002 is uh, some of our our folks decided uh, we were finally getting at the to the point where we had been working with a lot of community partners, environmental organizations to help caretake the lands, some academic institutions who were finally interested in starting to tell the Lenape story, and we said we we want to commemorate this in an important way. So we wrote up what. That year, the first treaty was called the Treaty of Renewed Brotherhood. This would turn into a recurring thing, and then we changed the name to the Treaty of Renewed Friendship when we realized the first name didn't adequately represent all of our people or partners. And the treaty is not uh, legally binding, just a, uh, well, like it says, it's, it's a treaty that is entered into in friendship. And it asks mainly two things that people acknowledge the Lenape people as the indigenous people of this area and spread that knowledge however they can, and that people commit to being good caretakers of the land however they can and, and watching over our environment in a good way. So back in 2002, we made this treaty, and then we paddled down the Delaware River in order to hold treaty signings all down that area. We started up in Hancock, New York, and I say we, uh, meaning the nation. I was not on that that first journey, the very early ones, but they started Is up in Hancock. Kayaks? Is it kayaks and canoes? Canoes and kayaks, mostly. There's 
someone who's been coming along and he has one of those cool i think they're called paddle boats with pedals on them um yeah as long as you know no inner tubes or anything you have to come have a safe craft because especially on the upper delaware the waters can get a little tricky um but yeah as long as it's a a safe reliable craft you can come down with us it's mostly canoes and kayaks kind of like like the old days how you picture you know the native american indigenous people you know canoes coming down the delaware and then stopping along the way to you know make friendships and treaties and absolutely and and that's one of the reasons for the journey and was one of the thoughts going into it because the Delaware River has always been sacred to our people in so many ways in spiritually, ceremoniously, and practically. You know, it, it gave us life. It supported all of our relations as a way of travel. It was has always just been so important to us. And we have many wonderful treaty signers all the way down the river and we'll stop and hold events for people to come sign the treaty and we will also offer our partners to participate in educational talks or programs. And the reason that's hitting me is because you mentioned, it just brought up one example. Uh, one of our oldest, our first and oldest treaty signers are the Equinunk Historical Society. And in their basement, in their exhibit, they have, I want to say it's 14 feet, 14 or 16 feet, but a authentic traditional dugout canoe lenape canoe that is just incredible to look you know especially when we're floating around in these little eight foot you know polymer plastic things and yeah. think men our people were really masters of the water to, to manage those kind of crafts yeah so cool but yes we we paddle all down the river and we let organizations or committed individuals come sign the treaty and the relationships that come out of those treaty signings are just incredible. They result in so many wonderful collaborations, educational programs, environmental initiatives, being invited onto boards and committees that can actually have some realistic influence on things that threaten the river or the water watersheds. And we decided to keep that tradition going to do it every four years. And we have been doing it every four years since 2002. Our 20-year anniversary was just this year. I know, and we missed that because we met after the river journey, you and yes. I. And it starts from Hancock, New York, and goes all the way down to, what, Cape May, New Jersey? The the first journey, and I believe the second, definitely the, the first journey did every inch of the river all the way down. They were, they were warriors. Uh, Seriously. We, yeah. We have cut some of that out of the journey for a number of reasons. The waters around Philadelphia are pretty hostile to private paddlers because you get the big cargo ships coming through, and it's actually very dangerous. And you can get sucked out into the tide. That actually happened to one of our members on that first journey, but they fought through it and they made every inch that first year. But we also, we invite the public to come paddle with us, and we we have had incredible numbers of people and support uh, come out and paddle for us like and paddlers people, just about like, like an approximate how many people participate in this in like a year that's really a good you know a good group it's really hard to say how many people because some people come along for one day some people do the entire trip so our numbers on the river will fluctuate if i remember correctly 
we had over 100 organizations sign the treaty and over 300 individuals, but also uh, this, this year. But also people don't have to vote with us. They can just come to a treaty signing event. So that doesn't mean that many people were on the river. Right. The whole journey was 21 days this year. And at our largest point, what we do too, we have a, a wonderful safety team from the National Canoe Safety Patrol who watches everybody who guides us down the river. And we do do boat counts every day. And our largest day on the river, we had 68 boats. And, uh, and many of those were tandems. So there might be two or three people in a boat at a time. Right. Yeah. I'm like trying to picture it in my mind, um, what that looks like. It must be the coolest thing. And now as you're going down and like nighttime comes, what do you do? You pull off and you just camp wherever you are, or you designate yes. that you camp or. Yes. Um, oh, and that gets, that gets into, I think I got distracted. So what we generally do now, because, and especially because we have so many public paddlers and we never know their skill level, you know, everyone's safety has to be foremost. Generally, we paddle from Hancock down to about the Lansdale area. And then we skip the water, the commercial waters through Philadelphia. But what we'll do is we will drive into the city and we will spend a day or two there holding treaty signings. And then when we're done in the Philly area, we'll drive further south and, and put in the river down by Cape May. So yes, every, every night we camp. Uh, sometimes it's at campgrounds. Uh, sometimes that varies from year to year, whatever we're offered and however we can make the arrangements. Sometimes it's at national, well, I should say it, it's always at campgrounds or once in a while we'll have a, a private member who, who will offer their land if they live by the river, uh, national parks, things like that. So cool. Yeah. So cool. And lastly, you're a story keeper. What does that mean, Adam, a story keeper? <laughs> I um, like oh, I do too, uh, very much. What all it means is very literal. Uh, I keep the stories of the nation. People often either call me a storyteller or they assume that because I'm a story keeper, I'm also a storyteller. That's not necessarily the case. Now, I do, I do tell a lot of stories. I enjoy telling stories as well, but that's not part of, of being a story keeper. My role as story keeper is simply to collect and hold on to those stories and keep them in my as much as I can in my mind but also in my library it's doing a lot of research and, and having those resources available so maybe you know for instance our, our chief of ceremonies or one of our ceremonial leaders might be able to come to me and say you know I've been telling this story at Maple Ceremony for five years now. What are some other good stories that would fit this occasion? And we can talk about that. And stories include a wide variety of things. It definitely, many of the stories I keep are definitely our cultural stories, you know, our oldest stories of creation and, and emergence and our culture heroes and how we learned our traditions and ways, the things people probably think of first when you hear about you know a story keeper but it also it really involves anything that i observe or hear from our people or that comes out of our culture that i think is is valuable to keep and to pass on for our youth 
So a lot of story keeping is listening, is sitting around the campfire with our elders, with our chiefs or our clan mothers. And some of the stories I keep, uh, they don't come out of books or anything like that. They just come out of hearing our, our elders talk about their experiences of life and saying, that's something I need to hold on to and make sure that goes down through our generations. Super important position to be story keeper. The protector of the the story and the history of the Lenape people of Pennsylvania, the culture, the beliefs, the spiritual ceremonies, the protectors of the land, the protectors of the river. And I'm getting teary-eyed, so I will stop. Um, <laughs> are there any of the stories written down in a book, a collection? Because I would like that. And I'm sure probably some of the listeners might want to know how we could see it collection of the stories. Yes. Now, unfortunately, that's very hard to come by. And that's actually part of my dissertation work. I'm hoping that will evolve someday into an anthology for our people. Records of Lenape stories are very scattered. Very often, our stories get lumped into anthologies of Algonquin Indians, which are very varied. There are many Algonquin tribes, and it's very hard to separate what is Lenape and what is not. But there are some very good resources out there. We at our cultural center, we sell a storybook from our chief, Bob Redhawk. It's an amazing collection. Some of my favorite stories and chief Redhawk is just one of the most amazing storytellers, just a joy to listen to. And that book also has translations into our language. Uh, if people are interested in that, we sell that for, for $10 at our cultural center. And that that's is just, right? that's, an that's Eastern, an Easton. Pennsylvania. So if you ship it out, like if someone in California is listening and they say, hey, I, I want it, you guys ship if they ask? We're working on that. There, okay. There's a notice on our website right now that the online trading post is coming. I saw that. Yep. None of us are paid. Uh, you know, everyone who works for the nation, we're all volunteers. So it's hard getting that kind of thing going, but we're working on it. Hopefully we'll have that up soon. But anyone is also free to write us if they want something shipped to them. And as long as they're willing to pay the postage, we can do that too until we have the official online trading post going. Sounds great. Yeah. I want to say I grew up in Southern New York and, and live in, in Pennsylvania now. I live in the heart of and very near the Delaware River and have kayaked down the Delaware River for a really long time, swam in the Delaware River my whole life. It is such a beautiful river for people who are listening in other parts of the world and in the country. It's a beautiful place to live. It's one of the most beautiful rivers, honestly. Um, and maybe in our next talk, we can talk about environmental action and, and some ideas. I'm sure the Lenape Nation of Pennsylvania has some really important ideas about environmental protection and concerns about this beautiful place that we live and just the sacred knowledge of protecting the land and respecting the land and right all the way from the women in the early Lenape nation times that were really knowing how to farm the land and I'm sure that's all passed to right today the sanctity of this beautiful land and river that's really important to my heart. And I cannot thank you enough, Adam. I'm so glad I got to meet you and let, you know, hear all about your culture. Well, thank you so much for having me again. 
like I said, our culture, our presence here, and particularly our Eastern Woodland nations, our presence here in the Lenape Hoking has been so incredibly erased that any opportunity to tell our story, to make people aware uh, of our culture and our continued presence here, it's it's very important to us and it, it helps us correct all the, the misinformation that says we were all killed or pushed out or or any of the other wrong narratives that the history books have taught until now. So thank you for having us. It, it means something to us. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure and hopefully we will chat soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you would like to experience healing or give the gift of healing to another, please go to my website, www.hamsaholistichealingandayurveda.com or email me at sherry at hamsaholistichealing.com or you can contact me on Facebook, Sherry Berjanski. I offer Ayurveda consultations, Reiki energy healings, reflexology and Ayurveda foot massage, tarot card readings, angel card readings, and much more. If you found this podcast helpful, please share an episode so that we can spread this wonderful wisdom of healing. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, take care. Namaste.